Well, Brian, thank you for having me round to your house. Would you like a cup of soup or something? You Maybe a little later we can have a cup of soup. That'd yeah. be nice. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Okay. I'll do I um, it's, a, it's you know the whole concept behind this this series, as I told you, was I'm privy to such incredible people, and I feel like these stories have been told, and these relationships, and and uh, especially with you, you've told a thousand stories and entertained a million people, <laughs> and everybody laps it up every time, and and uh, every time you're talking, I'm you're at Amelia or, or wherever, I'm always thinking to myself, God, I've never actually sat down with you and talked on my own. You know, it's all, it's always been as part of a group. So I so I thought that was one of the motivations, and so um, I bought your book. Ooh. Really great. I, I I said to David Hobbs, I bought his book, and I said, David, I would I would have given you so much more respect if I if I'd actually read this, <laughs> you know, right from the outset. But um, I was uh, I when I so I read it obviously, and and I was I was enjoying it because because the way you had it laid out, the way you went through it, is exactly how I, you know, I was waiting for the stories about. You know the honest stories about the danger that everyone went, went into because people skirt around it, don't they? A little bit. They do. Yes. And it wasn't anything to be skirted around because it was massively omnipresent in your life. Would you say for the whole of your career? Yes. Well, yeah, pretty yeah, well. Because I mean, yes. the car started getting safe yes. when you were, when you stopped. Yeah, well, safer. Don't last you think? professional year was nineteen eighty nine. Okay. Yeah. By so they were pretty time, safe by course, then. Yeah. The cars, monocoques, and, and yeah. 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 Did you? Um, I mean, obviously, you wear the scars on your face of 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 injury, and your body got wrapped up around. You know, you got badly hurt, didn't you? And and several times. Several yes. times. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Do you? Um, do you wear the? Do you consider then the 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 marks of the trade, or was it because some drivers walk through the woods like my dad? And I mean, he did get burnt in the Le Mans movie, but. Sun drivers never, never got touched. No, no. I think your dad is one of them. Yeah, David he is. <laughs> David obviously. Well, David did point out that you said he was never going fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a matter of luck, isn't it? Yeah. Really. Yeah. That's what it is. I mean, the first big accident in 1968 with the Cooper Formula One car, the right front suspension broke, and uh, I had no steering and no brakes, and so that was a, an enormous accident. Mm. went right into the corner workers post and hit a parked car which if I hadn't didn't hit the parked car I would have run into the trees so but it was Jeez. a scene from hell because three wheels came off the Cooper uh, I've got a, a compound fracture of the right forearm uh, one of the wheels hit a corner worker who was badly injured he had a ruptured spleen uh. and then he had a heart attack uh. and so the whole scene because it caught fire so, you know, there's fire, there's smoke, there's fire extinguisher powder, and uh, suddenly a face appeared in front of me like this, and he's got a cigarette in his mouth trying to undo my seatbelt. <laughs> so it all blew up again, but anyway. It's surreal. So it was a scene. Surreal. Because I never, fortunately, touched wood. I, maybe I wasn't going fast enough. I mean, we all had accidents, but you, I always think it's about accidents that also have ended terminally for friends of ours over the years your brain inside your helmet is not 
accepting defeat is it it's not going this is going to this is don't you what was your do you think all the way through your naturally fighting the situation yes and you walk out the other end but there are people that didn't walk out the other end Mm. and there's a moment that it must just shut off i mean do you remember much of do you is it clear is it like a movie is it like a movie there's no doubt that let's take that accident at spa with the broken arm i was i never lost consciousness so i was conscious throughout the accident but it's like a dream you know it was all like slow motion and a dream. I felt my arm break as it got caught between the car and the barrier. Yeah. I didn't feel anything. No. And then I'm on the ground eventually, dragged out of the coop, and there's still people shouting and screaming. But, and there was a, an English photographer standing above me, looking down at me, just, and I'm shouting, this effing steering yeah. broke. Yeah, yeah. And he's just staring at me, you know, like this, yeah. nothing. And then, you know, they give you painkilling injections, off to the hospital yeah. uh, by helicopter. Yeah. And Ferdinand Orban was the head of surgery at the University of Liège Teaching Hospital. Yeah. And he'd been a Winston Churchill aide in World War Two. Wow. So there were no specialists in those days. No. And they didn't have the magic fasteners, you know, that they have today. That when he got me on the table and he's ready to operate, and this is probably four hours after the accident, yeah. because he'd been attending to the corner worker who was injured. And he said, uh, Monsieur Edmund, it may not be possible to save the up. I smiled. I said, thank you, Professor. <laughs> and he says, why are you smiling? I said, because I'm here. And so I felt that there was some, you know, d- divine, not divine really, but something mm. trying to stop me racing. Because I'd only just got to the top. Yeah. No, no, I'd started in 1959 and now it's 1968. But it was only... Here in, I was born. Yeah, it was only... Yeah. It, literally, I'd only just got with John Wire Automotive Engineering the best long distance drive. you reached your top yes, pinnacle. Yes, and yeah. driving Formula 1 as well. Yeah. And so finished third, but only because everybody else broke down in the Spanish Grand Prix, my second Formula 1 race. And this is only my third Formula 1 race. You know, and the week before, I'd finished second to Jochen Rent yeah. in a Formula 2 race at Crystal Palace. And the week before that, we'd, you know, we'd but won the But that race, you beat, you, won, you beat everyone in that Formula 2 is a lot of people on that yeah, grid, weren't there? Yeah. So you must have been feeling at that point on top of the world, like, I'm yes, the real deal. Yes. And then, you know, after the accident, of course, I'm at home in Cone, Lancashire, near Burnley, where yeah. I was born. And Marion said to me, the only time she ever said anything about my racing, she said, I'd like you to stop racing, darling. Wow. And I said, I'm not stopping. Those she's are tough never words. said another word since really and we're still married 60 years later isn't it wild god (laughs) um i think the danger element is as a child uh i remember going into dad's bed dad and mum's room on a monday morning or a sunday and they would they would be in tears or my mum would be in tears because so and so had died at a track which made it incredible incredibly personal and relevant for my mother Mm. and the first generation i talked to dad about this you guys were away doing it as the kid Mm. like your son james i was we were home with the feminine side of the the relationship seeing the kind of aftermath of all this which meant that when i decided to go racing it wasn't 
wasn't an it wasn't because I liked water sport and I I glamorized it. It was quite you know based on yes. based on really wanting to do it. I saw that side of it and I also saw Dad's resilience and the way you tucked it away in a place that you guys yes. we all have in our mind yes. lock it away. Not happening to me. Uh, back next week. Yes, but uh, you know places like Spa and uh, Le Mans in yeah. the nine seventeen in nineteen seventy. Yeah. I. I knew how weak, you know, the chassis was. I'd seen them break in half. Yeah. And so when I was at Spa, I mean, I know drivers say, well, they, I, I really thought I was going to be, I thought I'm going to be killed. Really? I, I mean, lie that Saturday night before the race, I'd lie there, perspiration running down my forehead, yeah. thinking tomorrow I'm gone, you know. I so fear, David fear was real for you. Fear yes. was real. yes. I Do you said think that everyone to David Hobbs them? once, and he yeah. said, "You what?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "I thought this is it. Tomorrow I'm gone." And he said, "Well, if I'd thought that, I'd never have done it." <laughs> really? Isn't it weird yeah. how we all process it different? Do you? Th- so, if you had to define fear, fear for you, fear means what to you? Uh, I don't know. Something to battle. Huh. Fear is something to battle, like many other things in life. Yeah. Many challenges in life. Yeah. How do you balance that with risk? Because risk is something you took yes. to, com- to combat that fear. Isn't it yes. weird? You had the fear, but you had to take risk. Yes, you had regardless. Yeah, if you didn't want to do it, there's a hundred people waiting to take your place. That's I mean, what I When the, the uh, Targa Florio accident in the 1983 and 1971, yeah. I'd retired. I'd gone from the best long-distance team in the world... John Wire Automotive Engineering, the factory Porsche 917. And uh, you may recall this, but your dad, Derek, took my place in the team. Yeah. I came back from South Africa after four months of retirement. Now I don't have a drive. Now, Sid Taylor, a well-known entrant who I'd driven for in a Lola T70 Mark 3B in 1969, he said, drive this McLaren Formula 5000 cars. But then, in April, I got a call from John Wire. Hello, Redmond, how are you? Uh, very well, thank you, Tom. Would you care to do the Targraph? Derek's never done it, and you know, yeah. you won it last year with a seven. So I said, great, you know, back into the big time. So off we go. Well, Sifford crashed the car pretty hard uh, the day before the race on the left front, and it was repaired overnight. And very unusually, John Wire said to me on race day morning, uh, Redmond, we'd like you to start the race. I said, what for? Uh, he said, I don't want Siffert and Rodriguez knocking each other off. <laughs> so I started. And the handling right from the start wasn't normal. And just before, when I was sitting in the car waiting to leave, a German engineer said to me, Herr Edmund, if you must have the accident, do not crash on the right side. So I get 22 miles round the 44-mile circuit. I turned for a relatively easy corner, nothing. Steering broke, and I hit a stone kilometer post right in the fuel tank. It exploded. And so (laughs) I held my breath, shut my eyes. I hit the belt release, stood up, and just jumped. I couldn't see. I was on fire, soaked in fuel, on fire from head to foot. And then I just fell on the ground. Well, spectators, by this time I'm blind. I couldn't see from the fire. Spectators took my overalls off and were fanning me with magazines and newspapers 
took 45 minutes before the helicopter arrived. Right. Now I'm somewhere that nobody knows where I am. No. And Alan de Cadenet was brought in a couple of hours later. And I couldn't see and I'm bandaged from head to foot. And Alan's favourite story, which I'm going to repeat because mm -hmm. if I go, yeah. he will, yeah. was <laughs> that I had to ask him for assistance uh, passing water because yeah. my hand was bandaged. I couldn't get at anything. So about 10 o'clock that night, Richard Atwood and Pedro Rodriguez found me. They, nobody knew where I was. Took me back to the Porsche Hotel. So when they say you found you, you were by the road, effectively? Well, know, they didn't they know where I was. I was actually in a little the, hospital somewhere. Yeah, it wasn't a proper hospital. It was one, you know, there were no doctors hardly, just, uh, you know, families looking after patients. And so, uh, anyway, they took me back to the hotel. There was a German doctor there, and he gave me painkilling. Were you in pain? Uh, you must no, have been never beforehand. No. And then Gulf and Porsche rented a jet out of Geneva to take me back to England. And, of course, John and Totty Wire and Richard Atwood hitched a lift. And the main burns unit in England was closed for infection, so they took me to Manchester, which was good, because I lived, yeah. you know, yeah, an hour and a half away. And there, the surgeon, who was another World War II plastic surgeon, and he did another, you know, fantastic, fantastic yeah. job, really. That's quite incredible when you think about the, again, back to like I was saying, the difference between you remembering the burns and yes. on this planet or in the next in the next world is a well, minuscule moment. I mean, that was really that was tough, wasn't it? it? Well, it, I mean, I was so lucky to get out. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're talking about fractions of a second. Yeah. I think you know. Just, uh, what happened to the car? The car was completely destroyed. Nothing okay. left. Nothing. About 10 years ago, I saw Gerard Larousse, who was also driving a 9083 yeah. for Martini. And he said, hey, Brian, when I pass your car on the Targraph, oh, yeah, I am very worried, very worried. And I said, yes, I was pretty worried as well. He says, you know what was left from the accident? I said, no. He says, nothing. He said, there was a hole in the road, and inside the hole was the crankshaft. <laughs> Sure. Often in your when you do seminars and stuff, which is fun, right? The seminars around yes. the, the big events, it's nice. I mean, it's they become very popular with all the the concor goers, haven't they? I think yes. they yes. like to hear everyone talk in yes. a row um, and different perspectives. I, I liked host that one at Amelia. I really liked hosting the Porsche one a couple of years ago at nine six twos, and you know, really, it's I enjoy it. But um, you often talk about the, the uh, 917 like when you first saw it and you first yes. heard it it wasn't it wasn't an auspicious beginning was it to to well, it the success of the car no i mean in nine, march 1969 i got a call from porsche Herr edmund you will come to weissach and test the new 917 well at that time there were 10 drivers six germans Three English, Vic Elford, mm -hmm. Richard Atwood and myself, and one Swiss, Joseph. Oh, why do they want me? I'm up in Cone, Lancashire, yeah. and they've got six German heroes, you know, ready yeah. to die for the fatherland, <laughs> not very far. So I said, I, I call you back in 30 minutes. I see if I can make change my business arrangement. Please yeah. be sure to call Herr Edmund. I said, I will. So I called Joseph in Switzerland. I said, I said, have you tested, you know, the new 917 yet? And there's a long silence. He says, no, no, Brian, he said, 
we let jazzers find out what breaks first. <laughs> so I couldn't go. I didn't yeah. go. I yeah. didn't go. So, no, the, that winter of 69, I mean, Sifford and I won five of the ten races in the 908 in 69. At that time, the 917 was slowly being brought in. They were trying it. Da, 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 da. Yeah. I mean, the very first race for it was Spa in 1969. So that would have been about May. Yeah. And there were two of them there. And Sifford went out in our, in the one we had, and he set the fastest lap, actually, in practice. Mm -hmm. But then he came in, he said, no, we drive the 908. Really? He said, no. <laughs> so it was raining, and Herr Bott, head of engineering, was there, and he said, Brian, try the 917. I said, but it's raining, Herr Bott. Yeah, yeah, go out, drive slowly. So I get in it, my first time ever in it. Well talk about uncomfortable, my head's on the roof, my knees are up against the back of the wheel. So I, Christ, so, boom, I start it. Yeah. And I look, I see a switch that says wiper, and it's a huge wiper, it's like this. And it's on the left, I turned it, and the wiper just went, flew off, off into the pits. So I got out, I turned it off and got out. Then my boss says, Brian, what are you doing? I said, yeah, but look, the wiper's come off. He said, Go out and drive slowly. <laughs> so out I went and drove pretty slowly. Pretty slow. I, <clears throat> no, with the 917, I remember dad drove me around the streets of Coventry where there was like a demonstration yes. thing. Yeah. And I was very young and he drove me around. And um, I, I was just, you know, it was just a demonstration. I remember being very impressed as a kid. And then as a much older adult sitting inside... Uh, after my racing career, sitting inside, you know, a, a real one. I think it was um, the Collier one, I guess. they the Colliers have one, I think? Um, yes. Yeah. So I remember sitting inside theirs. And f for me, as you look around at a racing car when it's stationary, you know, it's race days are done, you know, and it's it's calm and it's beautifully restored. And you, that's the thing with historics, right? They're so perfectly restored and... and you think this was such a violent car, but when it sat there, and I looked at the rivets and I looked at the simple little gearbox and the tiny steering wheel for, you know, compared to, you know, what we're used to now, the lack of dials, the lack of controls, I, I mean, the lack of information, mm. but 246 miles an hour on the Mulsanne. In the long tail version, the long tail. yes, which we actually never drove, but... Um like a silent but violent machine, yes. you know. It's and yeah. do, how do you feel when you see these cars and you go to Amelia and, he, and everyone's like, "Oh, Brian, you used to drive this," and it's all tarted up and it's all. Yeah. Do, it's like you used to do battle as a gladiator in these things, and it's now it's now in the hands of someone yes. else. They were they were very purposeful racing cars, weren't they? Yes, they well, I mean, all it, you want to do is go fast. Well, it was built, of course, in a tremendous rush when the FIA, CIS changed the rules mm. from 50 to 25 production cars. You know, that's what, what yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so a Porsche knew about this because Hans von Hanstein, who was the team manager, he was on the commission there. And so it was really a copy of the long tail 908, except it was... 4.5 litres, actually, yeah, when it yeah. first came out, because it used the same pistons and valves and everything from oh. the 908. But it's an absolute tribute, you know, to Porsche engineering that they turned this 
really awful race car into one of the best in the world. Yeah. And today it's revered as, you know, as the greatest long-distance sports car of all time. And it's all Ferdinand Piak, who was so strong and powerful. He nearly financially ruined Porsche through those racing efforts. Yeah. And you don't read much about it, but it was all Piak. And the brilliance of the engineers, who were unbelievable. But if you see, if a low, let's take a Lola T70 Mark III B, same year, a much better car. It didn't have the engine because the Chevrolet 5 litre, which was the maximum size yeah. at that time, gave an unreliable 475 horsepower in those days. And it wasn't reliable. The Porsche, as it came out in 69, with 4.5 litre, gave 575 horsepower. And it was reliable. Then, you know, next year, 1970, it goes to six litre, to five litre full, and it's 620 horsepower. It's a lot, isn't no it? No competition. No competition. Yes. Yeah. You sit here in, you know, Vero Beach, and you look, think back about the drivers. Um, you've driven with some incredible humans, haven't you? Great drivers, mm. but also great humans. Yes. Like, Joe Siffert was... Yes. He was a great man, wasn't he? A great... Yes, yes. I mean, uh, just from what I got to know his son quite well, and mm-hmm. Dad always talks very highly yeah. of him. Uh, what, were like, what were the moments in between like? Because obviously racing is the known side of it. What were dinners like with him? What was, what was your personal interaction like with him? Well, it was very good, but he was a very you know, active guy in every front, whether it was the ladies or business mm-hmm. or changing yeah. cars or everything. He was yeah. non-stop. Was he? He was okay. unbelievable. Now, what happened was, you know, after the accident in 68 with my arm, um, in September of that year, 1968, I started driving again. The hospital in Burnley said they took one x-ray and said it was okay. So off I go, I go to Chevron in Bolton, and I do a run at Aintree, and Derek Bennett, the owner of Chevron, said, do you want to do the South African Springbok series? So it was Kyle Army, nine hours, Cape Town, three hours, Lorenzo Mark, three hours, Bulawayo, three hours, etc., etc. So I did all these, but coming back from Bulawayo through through Johannesburg, my arm wasn't feeling all that great, and so I rang Alex Blichnout, who was the organiser of the Formula One race in the nine hour. Yeah. I said, Alex, do you know any good bone men, you know, in the Johannesburg area? He said, yes, brain man, I know the Christian Barnard of the bone world. Mm-hmm. Well, Christian Barnard was the heart surgeon. Yeah. So I go to see David Raw on a Friday afternoon and he took 20 x-rays and he said, sit down, Brian, man, I've got two bits of bad news for you. I said, what? He said, the first is <coughs> you don't have any union of either bone in the forearm. Ooh. I said, what? I said, what's the second? He said, I'm going on holiday tomorrow. (laughs) So I said, I've just signed a contract with Porsche. I have to be at Daytona in six weeks' time. He said, I try an experiment that may work and it may not. And the next morning, he opened my arm up from my wrist to my elbow. He took bone out of my hip and glued it into my forearm. What? He didn't put it in plaster. He said, don't use it till you have to. So I arrived at Daytona six weeks later, took the sling off, and I drove, you know, with one hand. And yeah, then yeah. I know my arms fishing like out. this, yeah. resting this hand. Trying not to expose the weakness to the so, team. So I was thinking, you know, I thought, boy, it's going to be tough. And so at about eight in the evening, the first of the five factory 908s came in the pits of the engine misfiring. 
And the engineers examined it. They said, we are finished. They will all break. We were out by midnight, saved right. by the bell. Isn't that wild? So, yeah, God. I um, David told me to I, I ask you, he said, because uh, I was asking him about, we were just this morning talking about you, uh, uh, and he said, Joe Sifford and him, he said, tell me about the place at Spa when you went to one dinner and you went to the team dinner and not the management dinner. Didn't didn't end well? Well, it was uh, 1970. Yeah. And first of all, in the 917, now being run by John Wire, mm -hmm. Sifford doesn't come round on the first practice lap. Rodriguez comes in, Sifford is stopped on the side of the track with a flat tyre. So they put a wheel and a tyre and a jack and everything in Rodriguez's car and off they go. They change it at the side of the road. Sivert comes in going crazy because it was on the on the master straight. Yeah. You know, even mm -hmm. on the first slot to be going pretty fast. Yeah. And they change all four wheels and tyres, it goes out, it happens again. Comes back in again, change all the four wheels and they say, Herr Redmond, now it is your turn from Twasin. There's something the matter. Go slowly. So out I go. Well, I did three laps, gradually building speed. The fourth lap, I'm flat out. No problem down the master thing. And bear in mind, we're coming into the kink, which is the farmyard, yeah, yeah, yeah. at 207 miles an hour. I'm going through it at 108. So I'm on the return straight, which is slightly uphill. Mm. And the corner at the end is a right hander flat out and blind, followed by a left flat out and blind. Mm. As I turned into the right, the car went sideways. The left rear tyre came off the rim. Jeez. So I go, and then back the other way. And I'd read, I lost feeling, you know, of where my actions, counter-steering, mm. were in relation to the angle of the car. Yeah, yeah. I bet. I'd read in a, in a motor racing book that in that situation, if you let go of the wheel, it would straighten itself. And I did. I let go of the wheel. And it went Talk straight. about a Hail Mary. Jeez. I got in the pits, Sivert fell on the floor laughing. Did he I really? Said, what? I said, what's the matter with you? He said, Brian, you're the colour of your overalls. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we win the race on the Sunday. Do you? And okay. uh, it's the fastest long, you know, ever run. An average speed of a, over 149 miles an hour, including the pit stops and including some rain at the start. Unbelievable. And so... That night, of course, the incredibly boring prize giving, where all the officials are thanking each other in some unintelligible language. Yeah. And it goes on and on. And I had Marion there with James, our son. And of course, James is five. And, yeah. You know, so about 10.30, the prize giving finishes. And Sifford says to me, Brian, we go and have a drink with the mechanics. I said, yeah, great idea. So I say to Marion, I'll drop you and James off at the hotel and... Sifford and I going for a quick drink with the mechanics. What time will you be back? Uh, midnight. 4 a.m. 4 a.m. We arrived back. Brian. Sifford's doing spin turns in the gravel forecourt, showing all the windows in gravel, laughing. We couldn't walk upstairs, we'd <laughs> crawl upstairs. <laughs> and uh, we're making a bit of a noise, and uh, um, Marion wouldn't let me in. So... The hotel manager was called. It's a bit of... I can't go into all the gruesome <laughs> details. <laughs> you don't need to. But it finished up almost. That I was locked out of the room and stark naked, dripping in water. <laughs> so, 
Um, Porsche were banned from the hotel. Were they? Yes, so that's okay. probably what David was referring that's to. That's probably what David was referring to. That is a great story. So, oh, my. There was such a... That is a good story. They... I remember Dad and Jackie uh, last year. Jackie looked at Dad. We had dinner at the Hotel de France. And he just, with that big smile he has, he goes... <laughs> and they were talking about some girl back in the day. And he goes, Derek, it is lucky that there was none of the social media when we were racing. And of course, what a different world now. I mean, you were married the whole way through, like David was married the whole way through, but there were other drivers that were yeah. a little more free with well, the, the liberal with their affections, yes. dad. Yeah. And they were, but there was no, but in general, you could travel the world. And mm. I mean, dad called back home once a, once a week. You know, because yes, it was a pound yeah. a minute or something f mm. from South Africa. Yes, so he wouldn't. Yes, yeah. You know, everyone was so yeah. much more frugal, weren't they? You, they were, you didn't. Yes. Now we FaceTime. You could FaceTime, FaceTime my mum in Cape Town this morning. It's unbelievable. It is. Just the amount of communication. Mm. So it must have meant that when you guys went to Tasman, went to Australia, you know, went to South Africa, there must have been a, 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 a boys on tour feel to it. Really, and camaraderie. Well, the boy. camaraderie and what you were doing, right? The danger and the yes. driving fast cars and, yes. and exciting places. That, when you look at that, do you think that was a luckier era to be in than uh, now? I think it was because there wasn't as much pressure. I mean, you look today how much pressure there is at every level. I mean, this weekend at Daytona, even in the lower classes or even races that aren't in the 24 yeah, hours, yeah. there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Know? There's so much known, everything's computerized, they're looking at everything. We didn't know what lap times we were doing. And we never asked. No. I never asked a team manager, how did my lap time compare to Sifford's? You, know? you never did, no. No. And <laughs> that's an interesting... Oh, I was going to... Two things that come to mind. I remember... In your, and when I was ra racing up until the mid-90s, really, when the live data started to really come in, you could kind of go off or you could have a half spin or you could, you know, lock up under brakes and yes. they might say to you later, you lost a second or two on that mm. lap and you go, traffic. Yes. You know, there was no, no... Now they go, why did you, you lift off? They get, in the, they get on the radio and say, is everything all right? And you yeah. go, yes. uh, traffic. Uh, they'll be like, no, there's no traffic near you. I'm looking at the board. Yeah. You can't hide anything. No. You know, but now it's all, it's all, uh, yeah, it's so uh, um, immediate. Um, no, I was just thinking, you know, when it comes to, you know, the pressure, what was the pressure for, for you guys? Because you still, you were racing with the top guys in the world who came from, you could be in Formula One one minute, right? One weekend, you could be in a sports yes. car race the next. Yes. Um, there was a sort of, it was a bit more liberal in a way, oh, wasn't yes, it? yes, But there was still the pressure that if you were good, you get to drive the next week. Yes. That but was that, the was the, that was the pressure, really. Yeah. You either did the job or you didn't. Yeah. And so it, I think it's much worse today, everything. I mean, the cost today. You, it's going to cost you a quarter of a million dollars a year for your kid to be good in karting. Yeah. I mean, thank God my kid doesn't want um, it. Thank God James didn't want, you know, really yeah. want it. It's... No. It's uh, it's it's a. Yeah. I, I feel sorry sorry for for these kids. I mean, I really do. I think it. You know, yeah. it's a wonderful way of life, isn't it? It's a great driving at the top, yes. and it, I mean, <laughs> getting paid to drive a car around in a circle. It, you can't really justify that as no. great for mankind. It's just. No. It's pretty singularly. Yeah, that, that's the trouble, isn't it? I mean, it's, 
singularly it's tough. tough. Yeah. Did um the the chuckle I got when I read the book, of course, was the fact that and I'm desperate to say this word. You're the ma- you were a master baker, so to <laughs> say. So so how does Good. how does the master baker <laughs> come up in? I mean, does he still bake once um, in a while? The master baker, er, who spent three years at catering college, yeah, has never laid a hand on a pan since. Oh, no, really? Much to my wife's disgust. Oh, I bet. Oh, I bet. That's so funny. <laughs> There's not a week goes by for the last 60 years when Marianne doesn't say, well, you were trained, you know, well, right. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the driving the van around was probably the highlight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that was the mop business. You know, oh, yeah. The, uh, my grandfather on my mother's side, who was a very, very keen car person. And before the war, he had a Fraser Nash BMW 328. That was a hell of a car. And then straight after the war, a, a Bristol 400, mm. which of course was really a, like a modified BMW 328. Yeah, yeah. And then a 401 and then an Aston Martin. And he did it all because his, his wife, my wife's mother's mother, yeah. who had passed away when she was only 14. And she had a small bakery in Burnley and that's where my grandpa lived. And then uh, he'd worked for a company called the Patent Ringer Company mm. in Burnley. Well, the Patent Ringer was a mop bucket with a cone in it and holes, you know, where you squeeze it. Yeah, yeah, you squeeze it. That was the Patent Ringer, invented oh. in 1898. And he owned that company. He took over from Frank Ness, the founder. Gosh. And when grandpa passed away, I bought it off my mother for £500. And uh, it was then that he, he actually had an MGA when he yeah. died. Coop. So he cars. There yeah. were some nice cars. Yes. So what was the, how, what was the first one you were able to drive? The first one that I drove was TR2 when I was okay. 17. So I'd just mm. passed my test. I'd never been over 50 miles an hour in my life. Yeah, so we're on this narrow country road going across to Beverly from yeah. Burnley. And we're in the TR2. And I'm driving. And he says, I'm doing about 50 miles an hour. That's as fast as I've ever been. He says, send it on, lad, send it on. So I accelerate a bit, 60. He goes like this, 70, 80, what? 90. By this time, I'm feeling rather nervous. <laughs> 100. And he shouts, we've done it. Fastest Good. I've ever been on this road. Really? <laughs> oh, that's cute. Yeah. So... The thing that came through in the book, which I quite enjoyed, was um, I just know you as like nice, gentle Brian, and you're a, you know, you're such a gentleman, and that's sort of the <laughs> everyone views you as such, which is a quite an, a nice way to be thought of. Um, but behind the wheel, you were you were a tough cookie. You were a, a tough man behind the wheel. Well, I mean, the only reason for going racing is to win, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yes. Yeah. You know, that's why you're all there trying yeah. to win. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, a driver called Warwick Brown, an Australian, mm-hmm. uh, he was made a very nice compliment. He said, Brian, he's the nicest guy dead, except when he gets behind the wheel, he said something. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yes, I had a you know, very lucky, very lucky career with the Formula 5000 cars in the 70s with Carl Haas and Jim yeah. Hall of Chaparral. And so it's been interesting. Two years with Ferrari, yeah. turned down a Formula One Ferrari driving. Why did that? Why did that happen? 
The 68, turning it down. Yeah. Um, I got a call from uh, engineer Mauro Fugheri. Yeah, famous. Very yes. famous guy. He yeah. said, uh, Brian, come to Maranello and we test at Modena. Yeah. So I get there and uh, we're testing Formula 2, Formula 2. And uh, Mauro Fugheri says, Brian, at lunchtime, he says, over there, under the trees in the raincoat. I said, yes, he said. This is Signor Ferrari. What he's saying is go faster. Really? So then I go to the Nürburgring South Circuit. Jackie Hicks is the team leader mm -hmm. and Formula 2. The South Circuit, as you may know, is similar to the main circuit, yeah. but it's uh, shorter. So it's probably five miles instead of 14. And so I go whistling round in practice and I come in about 15 minutes from the end of qualifying on Saturday. Why you stop? Why you stop? I said, I've gone as fast as I can. Brian, he says, go out and try harder. You're in 10th place. So out I go. I try harder. I go 10th of a second quicker. I'm in fourth place, which is where I'd been all along. Race comes, fifth lap, behind Kurt Ahrens. I'm in fourth place. And he put a wheel in the dirt. Showered in stones. A stone came through my goggle. He <coughs> hit me what I thought was in the eye. And I stopped, threw, up my, threw my goggles off threw up and set off again back to the pits for four miles or so. And why you stop? Why you stop? I said, uh, he says, okay, okay, go, go, go. I said, oh, go, go. I haven't any spare. He said, take X's. And he throws me these dark green goggles, uh, which were okay yeah, in the sunlight, not great under the trees. And I drove like a maniac, I mean like. And I set the fastest lap and finished fourth about half a second behind your dad in third. Did he, yeah. <laughs> when you say drive like a maniac, it's interesting because there's moments, aren't there, in, our, in, in a driver's career when you know that you're driving above, yes. you're uh, almost out of, uh, in a different level. Was that yes. one of those moments when you, yes. it's like risk doesn't take a factor, you just have supreme confidence. Yes. What, why is, how well, can we do that? How, how does that happen? What was that? I mean, in this case, it was a combination of, you know, the urging from Figueri and, of course, yeah. knowing that it was a very important drive. Yeah. As you go through your life and career, there are certain days, certain times when you know that if you do well, then everything's going to be good, and if yeah. you don't, it's not. Yeah. So I got back into the hotel, the sport hotel, after this race. I just sat on the bed for like 15 minutes like this. And I go down to dinner, Fagheri disappears, he comes back. He says, Brian, I speak with Enzo Ferrari. For the rest of the year, you drive a Formula 2, Formula 2. And in September at Monza, Formula Uno. And I said, no, thank you. Really? He says, what do you mean, no, thank you? I said, if I drive for Ferrari, I'll be dead by the end of the year. So, you know, after this stupid retirement to South Africa and this difficult season with the Formula 5000 car in 71 for Sid Taylor, mm. and plus the accident on the Targa flow, the burns, I mean, actually about four weeks after the accident, I drove again in a 5000 race, but my helmet was catching on the burn area up here, mm. and the, uh, the surgeon said, you must stop uh, for eight weeks, nothing. Yeah. So I bought a caravan towed it through south of France, and uh, when I come site, one Monday morning, 
and I'd been up to get washed and shaved in my teeth, and mm. I'm coming back down to the uh, caravan where Marion and James are, and an English guy who knew I was interested in racing, he said, oh, he said, do you know that guy who was killed yesterday? I said, who? He said, Rod, some Rod. I said, Rodriguez? He said, yeah, Rodriguez. I said, oh, ah. Christ. I was in tears. <coughs> Got my back to the, to the trailer. The caravan, Marion said, what's the matter? I said, Pedro's dead. And then, of course, we get back to England in probably end of September, and I'm watching the Brands Hatch non-championship Formula One race, and I see Suffolk gone. They must have been so tough. They must have been tough moments. I mean, deeply tough moments. Jesus. Well, yeah, no, that's... It's the luck of the draw. It is the luck of the draw. And mm. isn't it funny when you're on track with them, you you do everything you could to beat them, <laughs> right? Every yes. single thing you could do. But yeah. in the same moment, you were, you'd share a drink. In the yes, evenings. absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I it's, mean... It's like war, but not on the, you know, war, the British pilots would come back to their base and the Germans would go back to their base. Yes. But I'm sure in another world, they would have had a drink that yes. night before yes, going back absolutely. up in the air. Yes. If it yes. was possible. It's a bit yes. like racing, isn't it? Well, you know, after that very difficult 71 at the end, so I've had the accident, everybody's being killed, Sifford and Rodriguez are dead, and it's like... And uh, Sid Taylor, who was driving 5004, borrowed a BRM Can-Am car yeah. from BRM. Yeah, yeah. It's been built for George Eaton, the Canadian millionaire. And so we go to Wimmerle, and it rained, and the car was great in the rain, and I lapped the field. And the field included a factory Ferrari, Clay Regazzoni. And Mauro Figueri came up to me and said, Brian, I said, yes. He said, what are you doing next year? Mm -hmm. So I'm back with Ferrari for two years. Jeez. <laughs> but the very funny, funny, the first, the very first race was Kyle Army, nine hours in uh, November of 1971. And the team is Mario Andretti and Jackie Hicks in one car, and Clay Regatson and myself in the other. And I put it, I put it on pole, partially because I knew some stuff about <laughs> Kyle Army, which was worth Little about tricks. half a second a lap. So. Anyway, we win the race. Uh, Ix and Andretti had some minor problem early on. And anyway, there we are at the Kyle Army Ranch, the hotel. I wasn't staying there. I was staying with Paddy Driver, a well-known local racer, yeah, a motorcycle racer. He's about 20 miles away. And he'd lent me this diabolical Kawasaki three-cylinder two-stroke. So now it's midnight, we're at the Kyle Army Ranch, where it's all individual mm. rondavals, you know, with straw roofs. Everybody's gone to bed except me and Regazzoni. And Clay says, Brian, Brian, we have some fun with Mario. I said, yeah, yeah. Yeah, how about <laughs> So he lights a newspaper and throws it into Mario's rondavel. Well, he got the wrong room, it wasn't Mario. It was a businessman had no interest in oh, racing. The police came. Were there. Regazzoni had to be smuggled out of South no Africa the next shit. day. And I rode back 20 miles on this Kawasaki. All I remember were getting an enormous wobble down, going down a hill in a dip like this. The bike does this. And then falling off in Paddy's rosebush. That's all I remember about it. Jeez. But it was the beginning of two great years. Isn't that Ferrari. fantastic? <laughs> yeah, 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 I can't. That is so funny. 
So obviously you talk about Sif and you, Andretti and Ix and all these incredible guys. Who on the day was the guy you went, this is... Well, to me, it's because we all obviously you never race tete a tete with Sterling, with Fangio, with Lewis, with you know, your era was your era. Who was two questions? What I guess or two things come to mind is who was that guy, and also how did you also go into the race some mornings going, Today's I'm as, I'm as good as them and I can beat them in every way. Because no, you know, it's I a never really looked at it like that. I, you know, I just tried to do the best that I could yeah. with what I had yeah. on that particular day, even if there was something wrong with it. You mm. know, you did, just did the best, and and really, and I'm sure Mario would tell you that the reason I beat him for two years to the Formula Five Thousand Championship was because I had more reliability, mm. uh, which I did. He was good though, wasn't he? Oh, he, fantastic! He was fantastic. Yes, I mean, and versatile oh, as a driver. Fantastic. Yes. I mean, at uh, Mossport in 1975, just before the race, I saw that Mario had lowered his rear wing for more speed up that long uphill straight. And I said to Jim Hall, I said, look, he said, do you want to do the same? I said, no. I said, I'll leave it. Well, before the race, we're all driving. Well, the race was delayed for an hour and a half. Why? Broken beer bottles on the track. Because Crazy. the Canadians know how to party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So now we're driving an hour and a half late on a convertible. I'm with Mario on the last one. And we drive around turn three. And there on the left-hand side, there's a man and a lady stark naked, lying on their backs like this. So we drive past. And then Mario shouts at our driver, Hey, go back, go back. <coughs> so we go back. And we stop. We're looking at these two. Mario shouts, Hey! Hey! And the guy opened one eye. Mara shouts, What time's the race start? And this guy goes, What race? <laughs> <laughs> well, in the race, you know, he pulled six or seven car lengths up the straight every lap. And I could close up by the... But start. under braking and through the corners, past. you could do it, yeah. Couldn't get past. And wow. I finished like, Half a car's length yeah. behind or something. <laughs> but who was who was the guy? Who who? So was Mario one of the best you ever oh, drove? Oh yes, yes, really. Yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, he was always. He, I think I'm. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this. He was a bit harder on the car. Yeah. I yeah. think my lengthy, long distance experience, you know, made me a bit easier. Yeah. On the car, he had a lot more mechanical problems, and he stole my chief mechanic at the end of 1973, Jim Chapman. Yeah. Ooh, okay. He went to he went to Vels Pardelli mm. to be Mario's chief uh, chief mechanic. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, that was a major major effort. In fact, it was a a change of scene completely when USAC joined the SCCA in 1974. Mm. So suddenly we've got Mario. Bobby Anser, Al Anser, Gordon Jonko, yeah. Johnny Rutherford, and others. All, you know, indie winners, yeah. everything. It was funny, at uh, Pocono in 75, we had a new car, the Lola T400. wasn't any good, it was slow. And Jim Hall said to me, what's the matter? I said, I have no idea. Is it pushing? I said, no. Overseer? I said, no. Why is it so slow? I don't know. I call it... Um, so anyway, by coincidence or by some miracle, the race was rained off. It was cancelled. And in that four weeks until it was re-held, Carl Haas, who was the Lola importer, 
and he'd sold four or five of these new T400s, Veldspar Nelly, for Mario and Ellen, so they had two. Epi Wheats had one. They were also, he bought a damaged T332 from last year, sent it to Chaparral, and so four weeks later, I came back with last year's car and won the race. <laughs> but during, you know, because the first heat race, I was like eighth or ninth, yeah. where, where I'd qualified in the first event. And so now I'm anxious to get to the front. When I come up behind Bobby Unser, he's in a Dan Gurney, the Eagle. Mm. There's a tight left-hander behind the oval part. There's plenty of room, so I go whistling through. And, Dan, and Bobby comes up to you afterwards, and I didn't know him, never met him. He said, Redmond, what the hell are you do? Passing me going into that turn like that. I said, well, you've plenty of room. He said, is that the way you road racers do it? I said, yeah. He said, okay, now I know. Really? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those, when the NASCAR drivers started doing the road races, there was all that, uh, all that sort of talk about, well, they just only can turn left. They can't, you know, they, they don't have any other skills. And then when you watch some of them, we're done. They're just good drivers are good drivers, right? A great yes. driver yeah. is a great Absolutely. driver. Yes. Do you believe Absolutely. that? That they yes. could, I mean, it's like, I actually asked David this. You look at, it's easy to say a Lewis or a Raikkonen or a, uh, you know, you go, oh, how Verstappen, oh, it's the cars and it's the way they are. But you put them in any era, they yes. would be bloody good, wouldn't they? Yes, absolutely. It makes no difference. I mean, they're always in every era. There are one or two outstanding yeah. drivers. You know, in my era, Jim Clark, yeah. you know, who I knew from his early racing days and my early racing days at Rufforth yeah. near York when he came down from Scotland. Yeah. And I got to know him well in 67 because when I was doing Formula 2. And he came up to me when the first time he spoke to me, actually. I'd seen him several times, of course. Mm -hmm. was he, he came up to me and said, Brian, that's a very quick little car you've got there. My Lola T100, as he lapped me. <laughs> Did he really? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'd try to click on, mm -hmm. you know, to do what he was doing and learn. And uh, I eventually had to back off a bit. But, yes, fantastic. I wonder what he would have gone on how many championships he'd have gone on to win yes because yes. he was only just even though yes. he was at the top he was only yes. just at the top right i mean yes yes it, when he died so much more know, in 1968 yeah i was just about to get into the john wire gt40 at brands hatch and it was raining pouring with yeah. rain and i'm really nervous and this journalist came up to me and said you heard about jimmy mate thank you mm. Yeah, you didn't. You didn't get a. You didn't sit on Twitter, did you? You know, like now, you <laughs> no, had to rely on the no. the news coming yes. back. Yeah. Did you go out? Well, what am I going to do? You know, yeah, discussed gonna... before. You either do it or you don't. Do and there's it. someone yeah. else waiting, isn't there? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk about what happened that day, isn't there? You yes, know what happened because yes. Dad was behind, mm. and he he heard a misfire, and you know thought he was or Jimmy had told him it was misfiring the day before, and. Beaky Sim said it was something else with the, you know, was it a target? I mean, it's crazy, really. Those, what was what was the car that you felt the most vulnerable in? Was it the 917? Was it, or was it? A yes, probably the 917. Although the 983 built only for the target of Florio yeah. and the Nürburgring, when I first saw it, it was the winter 1969. So Porsche have just won the world championship yeah. for the first time with Sifford and I winning five of the 10 races. Uh, 
there was a Christmas party and the engineers said to me, Herr Edmund, would you like to see the new 9083? I said, yeah. Ooh, so I get yeah. in it, I couldn't believe it. You know, my feet were in front of the front wheels. So when I got out, the engineer said, Herr Edmund, what do you think of the new 9083? I said, I think it's a very good car for Douglas Bader. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it, it was a fantastic car. And yeah. knowing what we know now, you know, all these years later, in fact, not, you know, we would have known much earlier. Um, the 9083, this little short, basic, based on the Hillfine car, yeah. would have been faster at Spa than the 908 Longtail. Because in 1969, we, Sifford and I, one in the, long tail and I got fastest lap only a year and a bit later in the Chevron B16 Spider with a 1.8 litre Cosworth FVC engine went three seconds faster with a top speed of 160 miles an hour compared to the 908 long tail of 200 miles an hour mm. but the cornering you know so, so the 908.3 would have been five or six seconds a lap faster than the long tail 908 yeah. built for the long high speed circuit. So. You were, I guess you're in a unique position to, and you must sometimes think about it when you're at uh, these Concours events and there's all these very wealthy people with their beautiful, they own the race cars and they own the Ferraris and us just, people like us don't have the money to own them, the cars you used to drive. But uh, the one thing they give their right nut for is to have met Enzo, right? To to have walked into the Ferrari factory, or to have been driving with Porsche in its in the heyday of you know the nine seventeen. So I think there's a lot of you know that's the connection. That's why you guys are so important to this car culture. Is you you're the only ones that remember what it was actually like. And as you were talking, I was thinking. You're also one of those few guys that walked through the gates of the Ferrari factory and have walked through the gates of the Porsche factory. <laughs> what was no. the what was the biggest cultural difference when you between going to Ferrari and going to Porsche? You know, there wasn't really so much difference when I drove oh. for Ferrari because the team manager was Peter Shetty. Oh, a driver. Okay. Yeah. And he was the team manager and so the Ferrari team with the 312 PB in 1972 and three was very well organized. There was none of that crazy, you know, throwing wrenches and all this no. stuff. No, it was very good. But the Nürburgring in 1973 with the Ferrari, I'm driving with Jackie X and uh, Carlos Pacci's with the Arturo Mezzario, very mercurial, you know, mm. little small guy. And uh, he and Dix didn't get on very well. And so before the race, uh, it was, it was Jacob Caleri who was the manager that weekend and he said if the Ferrari is leading at the halfway point then the other car must not pass so what happens X and I are leading at the halfway point right in front of the pits Mazzario comes flying past now they're battling for two laps of flat out and so Mazzario had to stop for fuel just before the end and he was ordered out of the car, out, out, you know, and he wouldn't get out. He gripped the steering wheel, put his head on the wheel, like this. And they, they forced his fingers <laughs> off the wheel and hauled him out. And he wouldn't come onto the podium. Mix and I won and Carlos Pacci and Mazzaria yeah. were second, but only Carlos came on the podium. <laughs> there's a photograph, so, I think there's a photograph in the book, isn't there? Yeah, of the three of you on there, yeah. yeah God, yeah. how good was Jackie? 
He was great, was he? Fantastic, really. I, how he never became world Formula One champion, I'll never know. Yeah, he was so calm. Uh, for and of course, young. He was eight years younger than me. Yeah, and so quiet. And when the first race at Carl Army Nine Hours, November nineteen sixty-seven, he walked across the track. It was a Le Mans start. So by the time we got going, we're nearly a lap behind. And then seven or eight laps into the race, he stopped. There was something wrong, and it was a fuel gauge, I get oil pressure gauge, that was all. But very, very good. And at Spa-Francorchamps, pouring with rain, admittedly, it's his home circuit, mm -hmm. and yes, he'd won the race in the morning, the saloon car race in a Mustang, I think. So off they go, start of the race. Jackie comes past at the end of the first lap, disappears through a rouge. Now you can't see him or hear him. Everybody thinks there's been a big accident and the whole field is held up. No. In second place comes, I think it was Vic Elford in a Porsche 908, 38 seconds behind. So. I think I read that you said that was like the best display of superior driving in you've ever seen. Well, I think I mean, wrote, it was amazing. Yeah. And uh, some years later, John Wire wrote a book and in it, he said uh, Redmond did a, a adequate job, uh, although he was 10 seconds a lap slower than X. <laughs> so I rang John. I said, John, that's a bit unfair. I said, Redmond, why? I said, well, um, your instructions were me to me were to maintain the gap. And the gap, when I took over after the first stint with X, was one lap. We were a lap ahead after the first stint. <laughs> yeah, so you didn't need to know more. When you look at the um, the guys racing sports cars now, and you look at Formula One and everything, do you uh, do you think you would have fit in today's era? I don't really think so. No, I don't know. The trouble is, I'm a bit lazy. I'm, you know, I prefer the easy way out. Which is uh, partly why I chose to drive, you know, drive with Sifford mm. in '69. Because at the end of the first race at Daytona, Rico Steinemann, the team manager, said to me, uh, "Brian, would you like to be number one in your own car and choose your co-driver, or will you go as number two to Sifford?" And I knew that if I went as number two to Sifford, I'd get none of the publicity. It would all be Sifford. But I also thought we'd win more races. Mm. Which we did. Yeah. <laughs> so there's something to being number one, isn't there? Also, um, I think that you're, you know, you. If you'd been born twenty years later, you'd have still probably wanted to do it. It would have just been a different. <laughs> it would have been a different, yes. a different thing. The other, the only thing I think that's off-putting now is the level of fitness that everyone yes. has to have. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that. I mean, I kept fit, but so I wasn't. <laughs> manic about it I mean now I'm looking on everyone's Instagram between the race at Daytona on Sunday their qualifying race and the, and going to the track tomorrow they, I mean they're doing like half marathons and crap like I mean it's unbelievable they're everyone does triathlons and 100 mile bike rides I mean it's quite a pressure well the first time that the ugly subject of exercise came up <laughs> It was 1967, and there was some talk about exercising. And I asked Jimmy Clark at a Formula 2 race in France. I said, Jimmy, 
do you do any exercise? He said, oh, hey, Brian, he said, I exercise every day. I said, what, what do you do? He said, I lift my leg to get into bed at night. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I followed it ever since, <laughs> being good advice. Well, as we wrap up, I was just thinking, as you sit up here on your balcony, thinking back, because um, there's always, you can't have regrets really, can you? Because you did some amazing things and everyone would like to have made more money and <laughs> and why? where were the $5 million yeah. contracts when, although Sterling was having all those big money contracts also when everyone else wasn't. Um, you, do you look back on it as a life well led? Are you, not many stones unturned? Um, in many ways, yes. Uh, as you mentioned, the money, I never argued about money. I never asked for any amount of money. And so in 1968, 69 and 70, winning or being part of the world championship, winning teams, the manufacturers championship, I made $1,000 a race for Le Mans, Sebring and Daytona mm. and 750 for all the others. So, and I never asked for more, I never did anything. Ferrari, in 72, the first time that they ever paid their sports car racing driver was 72. We had a very strong team. There was like 25,000 pounds in 72. That was big money. Yeah. It was Andretti, X. Regazzoni, Pacci, Carlos Reutemann, Mattario, Regazzoni, great, great, big team. And that was the first time. And then in America, in Formula 5000, I got $5,000 a race guaranteed, and then about uh, not quite 40, 45% of the prize money, if there was prize money. Yeah. But it wasn't much, although the first time we came to America with a Formula 5000 car, it was 1972, after having this miserable year in 71 with the uh, McLaren M18, I'd persuaded Derek Bennett of Chevron to build a Formula 5000 car. Yeah. It's the only racing car I ever bought. I said, can you build one? How long and how much? He said, yes, 10 weeks and whatever it cost me. And I paid Derek £3,000 for the chassis. <coughs> Sid Taylor put the team together, the engine, the gearbox, engine from Alan Smith in Derby. And it broke the Ulton Park lap record on its first time out, which was typical of Derek Bennett's yeah. designs. And uh, it won the first two races. So Sid Taylor shouts, we're going to America, 20,000 bucks for first place at Watkins Glen. <laughs> so we shove the Chevron on a trailer, open trailer, in Liverpool, ship it to New York. We buy a $500 station wagon in New York, tow it up to Watkins <laughs> Glen. I'm leading by 40 seconds from Graham McRae with seven laps to go and $20,000. You could thinking of it, you can see it. <laughs> the yeah. battery went flat. Oh, Brian. And then the last race of the year at Riverside, California, I'm looking to overtake Sam Posey, who was in a Surtees TS8, and it's the last lap. And we're coming down to turn nine. And I'm in his slips too, so we're doing about 170. And I'm looking to see where, if he's going to go down or up. I'm going to go the other way. Yeah. And I'm sort of like, and closing like this. And suddenly the back of his car comes at me. And I swerve to miss him. So I win the race. There's a protest. I've overtaken under the yellow flag. The chief steward comes to me. And in a strong Lancashire accent, he says, Now then, Brian, lad. He says, I'm Joe Smith from Accrington. Accrington was seven miles from where I lived in Burnley. I didn't know him. He said, as one Lancashire lad to another, 
didst thou see yellow flag or not? I said, no, I didn't. He said, right, lad, you're the winner. No, did he? Isn't that great? We got fined $100. <laughs> And after the race, this gentleman came up to me, took an unlit cigar out of his mouth. He said, "Ah, Brian, he said, I'm Carl Haas. I'm the Lola importer for North America, and I'm teaming up with Jim Hall of Chaparral Cars next year. Would you like to drive for us? And that was the start of that. Bingo. (laughs) Pleasure. Thank you. I've loved it. Thank you so much. We'll have to do a part two.